Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Tommy's day to shine. Button is pushed. Tommy's day to shine. Bright shining boy. Bright shining boy. Bright shining boy. Okay, I'm ready. Don't blow this. Daddy love me. Daddy love me. Okay, good. Dear Champion Vending Company, I put five quarters in your machine and proceeded to push B2, which should have given me peanut M&Ms. Regrettably, it did not. I found this upsetting as I was very hungry, and also my wife had died ten minutes earlier. I'm not saying that was your fault. I just want to be thorough. 
is the next real film board on rashpixel.fm, everybody. On this show, we take a film currently playing in theaters and we spoil that film rotten. Tonight, we're watching Jake Gyllenhaal fall apart in Jean-Marc Vallée's Demolition. I'm Pete Wright, and making up the gang of thugs whose midlives are clearly crumbling to pieces, Justin J.J. Yeager. Sigh. The truth hurts. <laughs> Tommy Handsome. Hi, friends. I'm falling apart. Steve Sarmento. I, I've got to go. My uh, refrigerator is dripping. I'll be right back. My wife left me a note a couple weeks ago. I'm just getting around to it now. <laughs> and Andy, the extroverted Australian Ness- Nelson. Crazy on you all. Yes, yes. Before we get demolished, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on YouTube or anywhere your favorite podcasts are served. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel, and jump on over to Instagram for The Next Reel's Pony Prize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge, hosted by our very own games master, Stephen Smart. And with that, demolition, gentlemen. The premise here is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Davis Mitchell. A wealthy investment financier working for his uh, working for his father-in-law uh, at their investment brokerage firm, he struggles to rebuild his life and discover his own feelings for his marriage when his wife is killed suddenly in a car accident, and he comes face to face with grief. Opening statements, please. JJ, why don't you kick us off? So I guess I start with a concession or a confession or something to say that uh, I'm going to have a lot of difficulty being objective with this particular uh, review or our discussion because of stuff that's happened in my life over the last few years. Uh, the movie is so layered about grief and super and it connected with me in a really strong way there. So um, I'm going to do everything I can to not make this a group therapy session. Um, however, uh, I'm going to come off sounding like an apologist for this film a lot because it really hit me emotionally and I'm very, very positive about everything there and I'm so excited that we get to talk about it today. Outstanding. I think the first thing it's going to come up against is Batman versus Superman. <laughs> so I can't wait to hear how that gets resolved. Tommy. I was hooked from jump on this movie. I really thought that, um, Jake Gyllenhaal did a fantastic job as it continued on for me, it kind of... I guess maybe the best way to say it is it ended up being an incredibly well-filmed, well-acted, very watchable mess by the end. I think it took on way too much, and I think certain sequences were so off-putting and weird, uh, but ultimately I was I had a very positive experience. It feels like you gave it a compliment and then stepped real hard on its toes. We'll you like s- that? We'll see how Ouch. that plays out. Steve? Yep. I just saw this this afternoon, so I'm still digesting this, but I, I do think this is an artfully crafted tale about barriers in relationships. Right now, it's a film I like, not yet one I love, but as we discuss this and delve into it, that may sway me a little bit. Andy. Yeah, I like the movie. Um, I, I It was interesting that, uh, that uh, Valet followed uh, Wild up with this, because they both definitely feel very much right. the same uh, spirit. Um, I really preferred Wild. That I really connected with that film. I really loved that film. This one, I you know, it's really funny. I watched this film and I kept having issues throughout, saying to myself, "Gosh, I bet that worked better in the novel. I bet that worked better in the book." And then I get to the end and find that it's an original screenplay, and it just really struck me funny that it wasn't <laughs> based on a book because it felt really novelistic at times. And I think that that. It just kind of is part of my issue is it just it just felt like it meandered a lot like a novel would 
And um, so I had a hard time connecting to it. I had a hard time connecting to the character of Davis, even though I still mm-hmm. liked the film and I still enjoyed the film. Interesting. I, you know, I'm, I, I also really like, I really liked it, like passionately liked it in throughout uh, act one and act two. And I think it just got messy for me at the end. I feel like my, my deep like for it is similar to, to the comments uh, that that JJ and and Tommy shared. Like there is just such a, a, I I was really moved by the approach to grief in this film and uh, I loved it. I loved the, the way, uh, the way they were able to make me laugh in the process. And then in the third act, I feel like I was a bit betrayed. And so, um, you know, Tommy says it was a beautiful mess. I I find it just messy. And and I'm sad about that because I think there was so much that that was really touching me that lost, that got Mm. lost in that process at the end of the film. And so... Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to to pulling this one apart. Let's start with the script. Uh, the screenwriter Brian Sipe uh, did the uh, did the script. Tommy, would you kick us off with some comments uh, with your thoughts on how the the film was constructed uh, in the screenplay based on what you saw? Sure. The first thing that stuck out to me was. Uh uh, I call it the Dear Mr. Henshaw, if you guys read the same books as I did growing up. Um, it's a, a lot like the film about Schmidt starring Jack Nicholson, uh, where um, sometimes a voiceover is looked down on in screenwriting because it seems like a cheat where the actor is able to just say all of their inner feelings in a way that they usually wouldn't. Uh, and one way to do that is... Uh, to do voiceover or in about Schmidt. In this movie, it's the idea of taking a non-participating partner, at least a while in this film, and uh, writing them letters. Uh, He takes uh, offense to being cheated by a vending machine and starts writing very long-winded and relevatory letters to that company. Um, I thought... it still is a bit of a cheat. It's definitely a gimmick, but I'm okay with it. I kind of like it. Every time that uh, in About Schmidt, it, there was a whole scene that started with Dear Indugu. I got a little bit of a jump from it. Um, I think it's a, it's a workaround, and I think it kind of works once Naomi Watts actually writes back and calls back is when the messiness started for me. Has anybody here in the Gang of Thugs ever been in... Uh, in a letter writing type relationship with somebody that became vastly important to you that you had never met. No. Nope. Nope. Hmm. Tommy. Daddy. No. No. I don't. I don't know what I was trying to think of. No, I haven't. I don't think so. so does that bother you? That or what? Well, sorry, that's the wrong thing. Um. Are Are you asking because you don't think it's realistic? No, I'm asking because I have, and oh, it felt oh. so. <gasps> Pen pal Pete. Perfect to me. It really did feel uh, feel really good to me. And that's why, Tommy, I nice. think I'm I'm with you. I give this a pass in this film just because that experience of creating a relationship uh in words was was really very real um to me and and felt kind of important. Uh and and not like a screenwriting cheat, but something that was really very personal. Um I, I don't know. How about you, Steve? What do you think? Well, for me, I, I I just went with it because I felt that they established that Davis was a character. There was he really had no connections to anyone else, and because the incident with the vending machine is so tied to his grief, it's his sort of cathartic way of working through that. And he has no one else to reach out to, so he's reaching out to this unknown 
organization. And possibly because of the, it's not a person, he's able to vent everything that's been burdening him without fear of any consequence or any possible response because of whether it's his parents or his in-laws, we get the sense early on that he just doesn't connect. He's he's has no emotional relationship with them really that we see. And so for him to have this unpersonal sharing, it's his way of dumping everything, getting it off his chest. And I, I went with that. I thought that it, it worked well. It, yes, I knew it was sort of the conceit to get the story going, but you know, the ability to just throw something out there into the void to get it off your chest, uh, to me worked. And then to then take it to the next level, to me that was an interesting step where he gets the call at two in the morning. So for me, it it didn't bother me at all. It was something that yes, I could see it's the structure, but I was willing to go with it. Just as we suspend our disbelief with other things, I just accepted it as necessary and went on. I, I actually, I, I really like this uh, way to do voiceover. So for me, it was an easy buy-in because it's it becomes a part of the story. Like in About Schmidt, that uh, relationship with Ndugu becomes kind of a critical um, part of his story, especially as you get to the final moments of the film. And I really like how that kind of helps his character um, develop and, and move through that story. Likewise here, it becomes, yes, I mean, it's it's a way to kind of give us some of the backstory and we get a sense of all the stuff that's gone on um, in his life up to this point. But then it becomes a, a an actual story element as he does end up meeting uh, meeting uh, Karen. And so I, I I liked it. I didn't ever feel like it was a crutch that they were relying on just so they could get the backstory out. And it ended up being a nice bit of, of sort of mystery, right? I mean, it was something that in, in some ways they're, they're – I'll say courtship, even though that's not that's not really what I mean. But their courtship is uh, is the the B story mystery that we need to distract us from the fact that this guy is learning about his own grief. Like that was a nice distraction for me. Did you guys stay around through the end of the credits? No. What's yes. this? Did at they the talk the, about Thor? No, at, the, at, at the very end, as the credits are ending, voiceover. Warmest regards, Davis C. Mitchell. Oh, oh, that's so cool. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, Pete, I like that you brought up the, you know, that it's the B story that distracts. Because one thing that I thought was interesting is that there's some people I think that'll see this movie and think that it's about grief. And there's other people that will connect with potentially different characters and think that it's about relationships. Um, and, it, and and it's about both. But I mean, I think it's different for everyone who watches it. I think the multifaceted aspect of it is something that I really liked about it. Um, when you talk about that sort of covering up of the B story, did you think that there was... Um, did you think that there was actually anything sexual between Karen and Davis? No. See, no, I didn't I either. Did. No, I didn't either. I didn't I, I, but I feel like it's inferred. I don't feel like it was. I felt like he kind of kept it pretty clean as as a friendship, and I mean, you never really see them doing anything. Right. And even even when they come to the party, he's you know, I mean, granted, he really just seems to have no common sense at times in this film, which that's something that definitely bothered me. But I understand him needing a friend in a time like that. And it's just like, you know, that's really why he brought her because it was his friend. And that's he had really only her as friendship support at that particular point. Well, that, so that, that I is. agree, and I think that they did that very gracefully. And I think you can, I think you could 
take that it was inferred that it was there or that it wasn't. And the fact that the script handled it in a way that you didn't have to address that question, I thought was really well done. But I think they did address that question every single turn, right? We have three examples of characters reacting to their relationship with a different sort of emotional response, but it was all the same practical response. Chris Cooper thought that he had moved on and was dating another group, uh, another woman. Judah Lewis, uh, Chris's uh, her son, asked if they were having sex, and C.J. Wilson's character, Carl, uh, beat the crap out of him in the yard for, uh, you know, the the implication being that he was cheating that she was cheating on him uh and so the the fact that the whole world of the film thought that they were having a sexual relationship or a romantic relationship uh and they weren't actually created a lot of the sort of interesting tension to me that that really made it more interesting that they that they were having a, a support relationship she clearly needed support too uh in in her own the stuff she had been going through and that's the interesting thing for me is because i think that's a story about grief and I think when they talk about the whether it's a crutch or whether it's a support, you know, I get, I, it, the value statement on it is not that important. But I think I think it was amazing to explore everyone else's perception of the way that Davis was handling his grief, um, and because you know, I, I, this might not be the time to talk about it, but I identified with Davis in a huge way, and I think uh, you know Andy talking about the the, the lack of common sense. Um, it, it, yes, it, for me it's a yes, but because I think uh, I found myself jealous of him at times in the way that he was able to deal with his grief because of his uh, his privilege and because he's he found people like Karen Marino and he was able to yes he brought her to the party and that was short sighted because he wasn't thinking about the other people there but he's enveloped in his grief and I think that's such a strong statement that's that's why the movie was so powerful to me is because in every turn where there are those questions I, I kept turning to grief and saying that that is that, that that's a really interesting profound statement about that emotion that makes a lot of sense and I'm so glad that it was so resonant with you that was actually something in the script that I had respectfully a little bit of problem with is the fact that he was so privileged that he could just take off of his life. He had no responsibilities. He was rich enough to, spoiler alert, buy a carousel for a bunch of children at the end. A lot of things where he could just drive down the road and see some people and be like, hey, I want to break down this house. It seemed like an interesting choice that made me have trouble liking him while I really did love what Jake Gyllenhaal did. His character was so unrelatable in that kind of thing because usually I feel like the problem with grief, maybe I'm wrong, but the problem with grief is also how do you fit grief into your normal day-to-day -day life? And how does that change things? He doesn't have a normal day-to-day -day life. He's rich enough and privileged enough that all of that goes away and he can just sort of make his life a sad playground. Oh, man, that hurts. Too hard? Was that not right? I kind of agree with you. I mean, but, but he seems, he has that spacey vibe i call it the spacey gyllenhaal vibe that he had in donnie darko, <laughs> donnie darko. yeah you know he, he just kind of is like wandering through stuff before and after so i have a hard time pinning so much of the stuff in it to his grief because he acts that way in the car with her at the beginning and then he continues acting that way it's just like he's so disconnected from everything before and after that i can't say it's grief and that's that's the character element that i struggle with here it's a good point they're both kind of cold fishes in that car 
which is an interesting sort of setup for everything that comes next. And she sets up that he's not paying attention to things. He doesn't pay attention to the fridge, all these little notes that she leaves that he's not paying attention to. And it's like he continues that. And so I don't think it's fair to say that they wrote that as grief that he's suffering with here. That is that is a challenge I have. And I, I, I it's a challenge that actually made the hair stand back up on the back of my neck in one key sequence in Act 2 um, that I, I just plain disagreed with. It seemed so out of context with what he was going on that I just I was like, no, you're wrong. I know you've studied the character. You've read the script. You are wrong in with this line where he talks to the guy. He's trying to make good with the guy on the train. And he te- he blurts out that he didn't love his wife. Um, and and that made me mad, uh, and, and I think it made me mad because it felt to me out of context with the experience of going through grief uh, in, in the space of her death. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm thinking of all kinds of reasons you guys are going to tell me I'm wrong, and I probably will end up disagreeing with you. But that is or, or agreeing with you. But that is my that's my initial take. It made me mad. It took me out of his experience, and I just needed him to come to the other side of his grief in his own time without without damaging their relationship. And in fact, that is what makes me so frustrated about the third act because they throw in so many elements. She was having an affair. She was pregnant with another man's child. Uh, her mother took her to the clinic for the abortion. I mean, the, so many other things get in the way of our ability to watch this character process his grief. And that's the, that's the thing I, I was uh, saying that, that hurt Tommy, that one of the things I like so much about this movie is that it shows that grief itself is an equalizer. It doesn't matter if you drive an $85,000 car uh, and live in a fancy house. Everybody feels grief in a unique way. And I think his experience of taking apart his life quite literally um, uh, made that experience so much more powerful. I needed this film to make good on that promise of this guy going through grief in his own way. And instead, they demolished that in the third act and made it that much less uh, uh, compelling of a journey. Like when he's standing at the end by the by the magical um, you know carousel, I felt like I'm not rewarded at all. Like I feel like he just sort of bought his way out with excuses. Nope. <laughs> can, can I, so let, let me and please jj you you may disagree with me on this and and i'm know, holding let, back all my apologies okay. right no now. no no let, let me let me t- tell respond to pete regarding this because what i'm seeing and really a lot of the things we're talking about here is this the where he was early in the film to me i don't see that as grief he 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 talked about the numbness with the doctor and he said, well, how long has it been going? He said, 10 years. So for me, it was, he had made life choices. He's living, you know, when, when Karen comes to his house, she's like, this is like this perfect house. And he's made these choices in his life because he, to have this life. But to me, it's, there was no joy in that. She asked, you know, there's a conversation about when was the last time there was something that made him happy or, or joy that he really, you know, he talks about, you know, running on the playground. So for me, it's a man who's made life choices to live what he's been told is like the ideal life. Why did he get married to her? Because it was easy. It wasn't because he loved her. Or any, and so he's really created an insular life where he has no connection to anybody or anything. And to me, that moment on the bus I'm sorry, on the train, saying that he never really loved his wife. To me, early on, that's he's trying to find someone to connect to because he now has, he's realized he can't grieve 
actually till he's found somebody he can connect with, which happens, in my opinion, way back in the third act at his wife's gravesite. Because that's where we see he's like things click. All everything else I see him trying to find a way to unburden himself of this grief, but he has no way to do that. He's trying all these things. It's not till that point he finds the note in the car and all of a sudden there's this it's like everything is unleashed from within him. But all throughout he's trying to work it out. But in my opinion, he's created basically a life of isolation and numbness living this false life and not nurturing love and living the life of joy that he should have, but living a life that he's been told is the life that everybody wants or that he should have. He talks about his father-in-law uh, grooming him for this position, and he, he takes umbrage with that word of that's something animals do. It's things that have happened to him, but nothing that's really been part of who he is or in a way that he's been able to connect to. So I don't actually see... Anything so, Steve, let me just on. ask you. I don't yeah. want to. I want you to keep talking, no. but I really want want to hear your answer to this question. Do you believe when he said to the guy on the train, "I don't love my wife"? Do you believe he was speaking honestly? I, I actually want to talk about that. So I want both of you guys to talk about it too. But I think it's interesting <laughs> that everybody's keying in on certain phrases, certain lines in the yeah. film that he's said all when he's experiencing grief. Um, you talk about the numbness, and I felt it for ten or twelve years. Or you talk about the I didn't love my wife, or the, uh, these kind of things. And I think that the, what it meant to me as the apologist for the film here is he was going through stages of grief at that time. He was in denial. He was in. He was trying to. He wasn't accepting the emotion that he needed to deal with in any of those cases because thinking about the love for his wife was too difficult. It, it, and so he needed. The, the metaphor they bring up in the film, he needed to deconstruct everything, figure out how it ticked and come back. And the, the line in the film that turns it around for me is when he has the apology to Chris Cooper and says, there was love for my wife. Mm-hmm. And then everything that he does after that, I mean, and it's, and it's all what, what hit for us. You know, that, Pete, you said that made the, the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Uh, you know, Steve, what you're, the, the line that you talk about at the doctor, I've said things like that. So um, it's difficult to find the exact moment when you're in grief. So I, it, again, it, I, I'm not, it's, I don't want to make it too personal, but we should go back uh, to, to Pete's question. Steve, did you believe him? Because I think the concept of where we believed the narrator in the story is really important to the way that you perceive the story coming at you. So to answer Pete's question, I think at that point, because I think later on he, he realizes there's a love he has for his wife, but I think at that point... He believes that he did not love his wife because I don't think he at that point he was feeling anything, whether or not he's being objective enough. But I think at that point he's in a place where he he's not feeling anything. So at that point, yes, I believe that he believes he doesn't have love for his wife because he can't identify what that is because he doesn't reflecting back on his life. He's not seeing it. Yeah, I think that I think that answers it. And, and when I said I, as soon as I said it, I I think you guys could turn me around pretty easily. I, you really can. Um, uh, I think I needed, I was so disappointed with that line because I personally needed him to express how much he did love his wife, no matter what had happened. And I feel like the film resolved in a very natural way, especially you go into the third act, the the the, uh, the grave scene where he comes into contact with the man who was driving the car that killed his wife. I thought that was an uh, amazingly powerful sequence for me. That hit me really hard, right in the chest, and um, and and it it actually let me see uh, in Gyllenhaal 
a performance of a man who loves his who who finally remembered all at once that there was love in his marriage and that he he did love his wife and I I needed that and and I think what I'm hearing you say is I may not have gotten that if if I hadn't had the the line where he tells the stranger on a train I didn't love my wife it is a weird structure for it of usually these kind of movies would start with someone talking about how much they love their wife and then dealing with it that being the with as a as a gross thing the payoff of admitting that he loved his wife is a really interesting approach for a screenplay and understandably is can be difficult for certain people because you're just left wanting for so much you're watching someone talk about and deal with a relationship you have no standing for. for so, I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm just saying that it is interesting and, and it's cool that we're talking about it because, I mean, the the risk of that is you're just watching emotionally dead people for so long and then realizing, oh, that's what. They did have something to fight for. Well, that ends up being why it's so important to, and, and why it's it's this awareness of, of JJ's that, that watching this film as a, uh, as a tour of the the process of deny or of a, a you know of of grief uh, is a a really important one to me, and I hadn't thought about it quite so specifically, but I think it really it nails it for me an approach to this film that I that I hadn't considered. Listening to you guys talk, I feel like uh, for me, what it's becoming is it, it's a guy who's not so much grieving through most of the film, but he's he's in a, kind of a deep depression, and he that he's been in clearly for like ten plus years, he's been numb. And he's now that his wife has died, he's struggling to figure out how to grieve because it's like a part of himself that he's lost. And and that's that's what he gets to at the end. And I think looking at it that way, I find it easier to buy into because he's really processing himself through most of the film, trying to figure out, you know, what what triggered him getting to this place and how to figure things. He's he's figuring all these external things out while he's figuring this internal part of himself out. And he's finally able to kind of piece it all together at the end and start grieving. So I, to that end, I like that, the way that character um, uh, arc goes through the course of the film. The the film was leveraged the concept of metaphor uh, heavily. <laughs> and, and I'm curious where you guys stand on, on the extent of the leverage of metaphor. The whole film itself is a metaphor, and within the film, wrapped inside metaphor, are a, a number of tropes that the script seems to take advantage of. Uh, what do you think? Well, I like the line when it was in the film because I've, I've, that's another thing that kind of points to me as something that I've felt in, in, in the process of my own grief is that you know you, you you think that songs are speaking to you you think that images are speaking to you you think you know you think that everything you see is related to what's going on and that doesn't necessarily have to do with just grief i think that maybe could be pointed towards emotional trauma or heightened emotional states in general you kind of connect with art and everything that way um, so i liked it i liked it that it was addressed on on the head in the script and was was part of the dialogue and part of that moment in the film and then i think it sets up an interesting way to think about the rest of the film it it, it draws your attention to it and I, and i was a fan of how they used it i i did not I, I mean i'm i'm with you but i've been reading some commentary about how the the use of metaphor they, they it was a bridge too far in the film did anybody think it was too much i like personally i like that jj liked it because he seems to be our what a sad thing, but canary our, in a coal mine yeah our grief specialist i don't know what a terrible thing to say but like i like that it resonated for you when it first happened for me it seemed too self-conscious and too just sort of like 
oh, it's called Demolition, here's what he's doing. That's A lot of the metaphors are so heavy-handed in the film that at times, I don't know, calling something out like that, it's like a screenwriter sort of saying, no, I get it, but still, I know. So if I know, then it's okay. I like I like it more now that it's really resonated with someone else. But at first, when I first heard it, I was like, okay. That, know. you know, that was a central point of comedy in the film, though. And it was a great relief, yeah. particularly the way it was unveiled. I mean, like, Andy, how did it hit you when when he first starts taking things apart? I mean, he starts with kind of a big appliance. But as that behavior becomes more insidious, uh, I found it really funny. I I liked it to an extent. I mean, I think there were elements that worked. Um, and then it got to, like, the comedy elements with him uh, doing the bathroom stall and his computer and all that stuff. Like, it was like, I don't know. I kind of struggled with it because uh, it's like, I, I don't know why it popped into my head, but it was like, when did he do that? You know, how long were people not using the bathroom <laughs> for him to have time to to sneak in there and tear the whole thing apart. And it's like, I don't know, I, I was, you know, those sorts of things where it's like, it was a clever story element that I didn't buy in the reality of the of the story being told. I thought it was funny. It was funny. <laughs> I'm just saying it didn't fit I thought me. it was funny. <laughs> no, I agree. Cause, but but when, it, when something is sort of like a fun little gimmick is maybe the wrong word, but like a, something that's fun to just sort of get away with, if it ends up striking you as how would that ever work, it's distracting. Like, I, I agree. Like, it, it, it's a detriment, I think. It ends up being more of a detriment if you're thinking about that versus just sort of enjoying it. I liked it in his house. Like, I liked him tearing the refrigerator apart, and I liked them, you know, breaking the house apart. Like, those elements worked for me. Those other elements, I liked that he had issues with them and and wanted to fix them, but it just bugged me that somehow he miraculously had time to to go in and do all of it. Well, I I feel like they escalated nicely for me. Like the first one with the uh, you know with the bathroom stall and and then the that we never actually saw until sort of later in the film that somebody walks in the bathroom and it's all taken apart. Uh, the lamp was you're right. I think if if there is a questionable uh, cinema time. Uh, uh, challenge, then that would be the one. The family bathroom taking apart the light fixtures. Right. That, that that one was a challenge. But the computer monitor, he could have taken all day. I think they set that up pretty well, that you know his his assistant was sitting there watching him decompose in his office. Uh, that, that felt pretty natural. But for me, the way they escalated in that regard, he got A, more public, and B, they, they, the, each experience became more complex, leading to his house, became such an incredible uh, uh, sort of escape for this relationship that he developed with Karen's son. Uh, this is, uh, of course, talking about uh, uh, Judah Lewis, again, as Chris Moreno. And I felt like Judah Lewis was perfect in this film. I think he handled it perfect. I think he handled a really complex part perfectly and uh, was magnetic to watch on screen. Am I alone? Love no, it. clearly, clearly the film thought so, too, because Naomi Watts turned out to just be a vehicle to introduce him. Yeah, right. <laughs> she disappears. She disappears. Yeah. That didn't bother me because of the fact that I felt like, again, I'm going to keep going back to that same apologist narrative of the fact that in going through his grief, he needed Karen at the beginning. And what he connected with in through the story is what he needed to find was his this sounds so cheesy and dumb, but inner child to get back to the race. 
right? And so the third act or, or what the connection that's more important as we progress through the story is his connection to Chris um, because he's connecting with himself as a child. It, 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 it's just, I mean, again, I, it, it sounds apologist even as I'm saying it, but that's why it worked for me. Well, I think you, you're you right on it. And for me, I, that was actually the comment I was going to make about Judah Lewis, about Chris Moreno, uh, the, the character, that he had been pushed in uh, uh, to mature very, very quickly. And in fact, it felt much more like he needed to find his inner child again sure. and did so through his relationship with Davis. I thought that was a really powerful partnership. For me, I, I really liked Naomi Watts in the film, and I didn't have a problem that she does kind of disappear once we meet Chris, uh, because I really did also love Judah Lewis in the role. But the thing that bugged me the most about the use of Naomi Watts in the film, and I don't know if I'm just being petty or it just was a moment that frustrated me, but it was the moment at the party uh, or at the reception, whatever it was, when they're creating the uh, uh, memorial for uh, for his uh, his dead wife. And she's like outside smoking a joint and one of the nominees kind of comes up and, and wants, uh, you know, offers his own joint and Swimmers. then can't trust yeah, him. <laughs> wants to fondle her. It, but it's just like, I mean, it was, I guess it was just a device used to kind of point out how this guy was really not that great. And I, I don't know. It was just one of those moments that frustrated me because I'm like, why is it really there? It just didn't, I don't know. For me, it didn't feel like it It was, so, it it was like so, it so clunky. It was yeah, so it just, clunky. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and that, I was. It, what, what was the payoff? Was that we somehow what that we are now? It, it influences our impression of this scholarship program. Why do we even need to care about that? Uh, well, right. it's, because it's, it makes the carousel more important. No. <laughs> the dumbest <laughs> thing in the entire world. It's, it's really Deus Ex Machina for her laugh, right? Because otherwise, why does she laugh in that scene? And, and to get them out of there, so that that amplifies the awkwardness of that situation. So that so that Davis can have the thing. Did you know she had, you know, that they can have the confrontation and it can lead. I mean, it is deus ex machina in the script because that leads to the to the affair conversation that leads to the the revelation at the gravesite. I mean, it really is a series of events that the script is using for that. But again, it, because I liked the story, that's why I went with it. I think yeah, that gets, it was just it, rough. Yeah, it was rough for me, too. And that gets to the just the sort of litany of things that complicate the third act unnecessarily. And I'm, I'm not saying that I that I didn't like the movie because of it, but I felt like uh, it just complicated things unnecessarily. I wanted the original movie back. Yeah, yeah, that's is that a, exactly. Is, is that feeling. an okay way to say it? Yes, yeah, that's like, exactly. I was on it. and on, and then it just kept just spir- It just took on too much and was spiraling away. Yeah. It took on too much. It wanted to to like prove too many points. Is it? Is it? Do you guys feel that way because you feel that life can't be that terrible? I don't think that life is that actually orchestrated. That's that's it. Keep going. Keep talking, Tommy. You go, Tommy. Oh, I feel like I really said something <laughs> smart. Now I'm going to blow it. Um, hey, guys. <laughs> no, uh, just basically that there was such a naturalistic, a little bit of I don't know what's possibly going to come next thing while people were still learning. And then it became really overwritten and orchestrated to start to deal with too many issues and also going to this what I feel was a very maudlin and orchestrated ending as some sort of a catharsis. It all just sort of fell apart for me. For me, it was that meandering sense of the story. It just, it felt like they, they were setting up a lot of things and then they, they 
wanted to jam it all in and just it, it ended up being so many different parts and pieces and yes life can be vast and complex and there can be lots of different layers and everything but when you're writing a script when you have a, a screenplay sometimes that can hurt it when it all of a sudden just feels like it, you know you're floundering trying to tie up all these loose ends and that's where it left me and that's why I felt like it had this novelistic approach that uh, I felt like it could have worked really well in a novel, and I felt like the screenwriter here needed to do a better job of of, of cleaning it up for the screenplay. I that was that was exactly um, exactly it for me, and I think the the problem is there was already enough story and complexity to to be satisfying and not not overly orchestrated. That when they started damaging the, the 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 character of his dead wife by now adding the fact that she'd had an affair and adding the fact that she was pregnant, that was all stuff that we didn't need. We didn't need to understand that he was going through an incredibly complex time, and and I feel like they they did that just to like amp it up and make more noise and it just it didn't need to be noisy it could have it it could have ended in a way that that resolved and felt much more sort of humane that's how i feel about my life too (laughs) it doesn't need to be so noisy it can end more humane i don't know if you guys felt uh, i don't know if either any of you guys saw moonlight mile but that was like for jake gyllenhaal film it it felt like oddly similar and that was another frustration i had i'm like gosh did the screenwriter watch that before writing this because you know the fact that that in that film jake gyllenhaal to spoil that film don't listen to this uh, next 30 seconds if you haven't seen it but he and his his uh girlfriend um fiance um had just broken up a few days before she ends up getting murdered and um, her, uh, her, and and then he doesn't tell her parents that uh, after the murder, like he, nobody knows that they had just broken up, and they think that they were still together, and they still had this strong relationship and all that. And I felt like there was a lot of that kind of sense here. And I know, like he didn't know, but still, there was this kind of struggle with their relationship, and and that he wasn't connected, and all these other people had so much sense of love for him, even though he wasn't connected to it. But I didn't like Moonlight Mile, and that might have been because of the time in my life that I watched it. But um, I didn't feel like it was a personal grab in the way that this movie was. Although, oddly, that was based on the director's uh, real-life story. Exactly. <laughs> it, felt, I, it felt too orchestrated to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, I, how much of this is a question of restraint in, on the direction, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée? You, uh, Andy, you made a comment comparing this to Wild. Um uh, and that you liked ended up liking Wild better. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know I struggled after I watched this processing if the problems I had were the script or with uh, the direction. I feel like vastly it's the script, and I feel like, uh, but I feel like some of it has to be put into Valet's court. I mean, I, I do think that he directed it well. I don't think it was as good as Wild, but I do think as the director, I don't know. I just felt like you know he should have seen some of these script problems and and worked with the screenwriter to to strengthen the story so that they didn't stand out as much. And um, I, I don't know. For me, I really liked the way that he told the story oftentimes, like with him and the editor and how they would cut from scene to scene. I, I thought there was some really clever stuff and how tight it was at times. But then sometimes there was just stuff in here that like the, like the problem I have at the uh, scholarship dinner that just it's like, gosh, they – they had to there had to be another way they could have found to get through this 
And those were the things that I struggled with uh, the direction here, as well as the writing. Yeah, I think that's a problem for me, too. It's a combination of, of these are script problems, like story problems, and not so much production, like cinematography, editing problems, which I thought were exceptional. Mm-hmm. I did think it was an interesting choice to uh, to have the whole thing, at least it seemed like the whole thing, uh, shot handheld. Um, you know, it was an interesting decision because for a, for a story about a guy who's kind of like so disconnected, handheld sometimes makes you so connected that sometimes I felt like some really smooth shots might have been a little more effective to help with the story. But then I also felt really connected to it. So I don't know. I was, I was a little torn on that handheld thing, but I certainly noticed it often. That's interesting. Can I ask you to follow up on that, Andy? You said that handheld makes you feel more connected. Well, because you're right there. You feel like... Oh, because it's more like real life-ish. Yeah, fly, right. Fly you know, you're like, when it's I done well. It. When it's right. done well. And I felt, you know, you feel like you're right there in there with the character, moving with the character. But there were so many times that I felt like it was just a little... It wasn't quite jiggly monkey. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a it little self... It was a little much sometimes. It was I, a little much sometimes, yeah. feeling like I'm there, I was like, I'm seeing the camera move. I totally agree. That's a good point. Cinematography is done by Yves Belanger. Um, uh, JJ, what did you think of the camera? I, I liked it in the sense that uh, exactly what Andy's saying is that I didn't notice it, and and I usually hate handheld, and I didn't notice it at all because I and it's I, I'm not able to offer my my usual camera comments because I was so emotionally compromised by you know my personal attachment to the film, but that to me is a signal that it was done well. So well, um, so that's kind of how I feel about it. And I think that's really interesting, JJ, because I think that speaks to um, how people end up, what they take from the film. And you took a lot more because you connected to the story. You really kind of had that sense of connection. So you didn't necessarily notice that handheld. You almost could say that that handheld camera helped connect you to the story. And for me, it's like uh, I I wasn't as connected to the story. And so the handheld stood out more for me, even though I, I still... It was that weird thing where I felt kind of connected, but I also kept feeling like it was pushing me back from it. It becomes mm-hmm. an odd choice at that stage. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Did anybody else think about Weird Al's Amish Paradise video during this movie at all? Nope. What? I am really surprised that I'm the only one who picked this up. And I, I recognize it may be uh, a, a unique perspective. I, I recognize that. And by unique, I don't mean necessarily good. Uh, but uh, there is a sequence in which uh, Davis goes is down on the busy street and he's got his his headphones on and he's kind of already starting to physically decompose, right? He no longer wears ties. And he's walking down the street, but he's moving forward while, while everyone else oh, is moving backward. Right. That's a thing from Weird Al's Almost Paradise video? <laughs> it's my I didn't favorite know sequence in, okay. the, in like music video history where Weird Al <laughs> is, <laughs> is it's in the Amish Paradise video and he's laying in a hay bale and he's doing his lip sync thing and then he like falls up and he starts walking toward the camera while lip syncing this whole this thing while everything else around him is going backwards and you realize that dude is incredibly talented because he's lip syncing backwards in order to sync <laughs> to the music when it's played forward and that blew my mind the day I saw it, and it still blows my mind today. <laughs> Thank and you for bringing that up. Apart from Weird Al, <laughs> that is actually a really cool thing. I'm glad you brought that up. That was something that I wanted to just touch on, is the idea the walking through New York streets or wherever they were is such just a thrown away thing. They did four or I think five yes. different versions of him walking through, and actually his... Each one was slightly different. 
One was him lost in the crowd. One was him not even like it just he just disappears and it just keeps going and going. One is him completely in control. That was actually they took a trope or just or a, a cliched shot and said something with it. And I was really impressed by that. Everything is metaphor. Everything is metaphor. My favorite one absolutely was him in in the music jam when he was dancing through the city of New York and was absolutely anonymous, like nobody noticed. Uh, I thought that was such a a wonderful visual statement about what he was going through, that that his grief was his and really nobody cared. And along with that, I mean, it's one of the things that I don't think really resonated with you guys is the fact that he was haunted by his wife throughout the film. Yeah, uh, and I, in, nice. in, in a camera way, I thought that was that was interesting that it came up because you know some of the stuff that hit you guys was that he, if you believed that when he said he didn't love his wife, um, I think the film showed something different in that, and that's why I think I believed more when he came to his conclusion at the end. I liked the way they did that, especially the scene when he's in Karen's bathroom and needs mm-hmm. to sit down, and that was late. Yeah. You know, when you consider where the story is going, that's late and he's and he actually needs to kind of let her push her away, push the memory of her away. I, I, I found those things powerful in that way, in the same way you're talking about the, the walking through the city streets things. These sort of clips that were added in added to my enjoyment of the film. That was a moment of grief in there uh, at that moment in the bathroom um, that he does kind of it's really the only moment of grief he has up until the ending. And it was nice to see that one moment. Um, and I, I also like that there's that moment early on when he's trying to fake the grief yeah. as he's practicing in front of the mirror. Yeah. Some, some nice little moments. The, some of the visual trickery, too. You mentioned the haunting. Um, you know, the visual trick, trickery was really terrific. And I, I'm thinking specifically of the little hints of his own uh, kind of weird delusions in the airport. Uh, yeah, suitcases. Uh, the suitcases, and where you only see the pile of clothes in the reflection oh, that of... Was great. The, that was yep. just great. It, it was like mind-blowingly subtly great. And I just really, I mean, that was a, a tip-of-the-hat moment for for restraint on, on the part of Jean-Marc Vallée. I thought that was beautifully done. Completely agree. Uh, any other comments on Cass? We, we should probably mention Chris Cooper as Phil, the, the father-in-law. I always like Chris Cooper, uh, so you know I'm a softie as far as that's concerned. Yeah, no, I thought he was really good too. I love Chris Cooper. I I do feel he is getting a bit typecast, uh, but weirdly, and this this speaks not to typecasting at all. All I could think of when I saw him here for some strange reason is his. Uh, I just wanted him to go maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh from the Muppets. <laughs> it's, I don't know why that character is what popped into my head here. <laughs> I'm glad that I didn't remember that part for the Muppets because I would have been thinking about that too. <laughs> it's like all I could think of with him right? is weird connection because I love Chris Cooper. He's so good in everything that he does. Yes, he is kind of getting typecast as kind of a that that kind of an old grump. But I do feel that even though he was kind of treated as as kind of an antagonist in this film, I liked that it wasn't. He never was just an antagonistic, like the the evil stepfather, even though we kind of get that sense, you know, at the beginning was like, I don't like you at all, Davis, or whatever he says. Yeah. I liked that it didn't just leave it there. Like we actually got to a place where where Davis and and uh, and Phil ended up kind of having a connection at the end that they really should have had and that Davis was able to work through 
the what he needed to get through so that he could have that conversation with Phil. And someone said that wasn't a payoff for them. That was a payoff for me. Uh, again, but I was emotionally with the film the whole way. You're talking about the end? Yeah, the, I liked the carousel. I liked the race. I thought they were both powerful. I liked their yeah. conversation in the in the bar restaurant like there, that yeah. that was yes. that, that was for me was the strong part that's fair the, i the the part with the carousel i didn't have a huge problem with it it fit in context of the story but the scope of it i felt might have been a little too grand <laughs> i would i would only add there and it fit in the context of the story that that emerged in the third act that i didn't like <laughs> right like it was you're right it absolutely fit but the way we got there was a way that I think, you know, damaged the what I really loved so much about the film. It actually gave me some catharsis with Davis, uh, not to take away from his grief, but some of the stuff he did was incredibly insensitive and incredibly terrible, which I guess is sort of expected or somewhat allowed with grief. But I liked that Chris... Cooper took him to task and was like, I don't understand what you're doing. That's that's where he should have stopped is I don't understand what you're doing. But to take someone to task and be like, I know you're going through something, but your demolition routine is destroying what we have and destroying people around you. I needed that also. I did, especially because his parents, because Davis's parents were such like non-entities in that regard. Well, and Chris, oh, no, I was just going to say, and that's coming from uh, from Phil, whose daughter had died. So he and his wife were also going through grief in their own way. It's just that they couldn't understand Davis's form of grief or, right. or just the depression right. that he was in because he wasn't really grieving the way that they expected him to. He wasn't grieving appropriately, Period. which is kind of an interesting, yeah. I like the idea of struggling with the idea of what's appropriate grief. Right. Well, and that's the that's the what the film is for me. It's a statement on it's it's putting the spotlight on the audience and saying, is this appropriate for you? Is it you know? And it's saying every 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 person that's watching this, including all the characters in the film, all the people that are staring outside his office as he's deconstructing, who are watching him destroy his house, who are doing all that. That's the audience. Is this appropriate? Is this is it some is it something that people need to do? And 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 for me, that's where the question hit home with me. The, mm. the thing that I wanted to ask about was uh, Pete and and. I'll, Everyone seems to be saying that the third act was really troublesome in the way of the the multiple elements that were in there. And and I've already sort of conceded the fact that I, I recognize that some of it was used as deus ex machina to keep the story going along. We've talked about how much we like Judah Lewis. How did you feel about the gay conversation that he had? Because that I, really was an I, element just to move the story along in the third act. I really liked it, and I felt it belonged in another movie. That's fair. And especially once he got beat beaten up, I was just like... The, the way that the it was revealed and the editing was so smart and with the cross-cutting, I loved all of it except for the fact that I wanted my movie back. I want to see that movie with Judah as Chris Marino very much so too, but to sort of, it felt shoved in and I didn't understand the connection. Everything is metaphor. Maybe I just missed it. The scene itself of uh, in the hardware store, uh, I thought was terrifically well written. Uh, it was just a, an exceptional bit of dialogue, and and the level of of discomfort and and comfort that is portrayed mm-hmm. by you know Gyllenhaal in this case was just expert. Like I, I was one hundred percent in it, and, and felt like they like they both were coming to terms with something that that they were that they were 
only uncomfortable with because they both recognized that this was an uncomfortable time for a teen learning something important about himself. Not that they were necessarily uncomfortable uncomfortable about it because it was like somehow game changing for the times. Like I felt like he was like Gyllenhaal's uh, Davis's character was at this point saying, "Okay, you know what? It's going to be hard, but um, you know we're in a different time than we were 20, 30 years ago, and it's still going to be hard." And and you know. But it'll get easier. And in fact, it was that conversation that ended up, you know, causing Judah Lewis to make the choice he was he made to sneak out and then eventually get beaten up. So I really loved that connection. And I'm absolutely with Tommy. I want to see that movie with these characters. But you got to give give the chance for Davis's grief story to to be played out uh, to its to its end. And I think jamming that that and angle of the story, the gay story, the 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 uh, was was doing it a disservice. There was something with the conversation, though, that I I found very interesting as far as Davis's kind of sense of trying to figure out how to deal with the world at this time in his life, because he kind of at at this point, Chris sees him as the guy who will be honest about anything, right. or you know, just kind of you know say it as is it as it is that sort of guy like that's how chris kind of sees davis at this point and it's so really that's just why he... talk to a kid as an adult right not, and, the, and... the honesty stuff isn't really doesn't really play that much for me but just sort of talk to me as a peer yeah it's it's an interesting conversation to have and it's interesting to kind of have it portrayed that way uh that the davis kind of treats it that way which is nice to see um i feel like to make it work better, like I feel like, or to make it feel like it fit better in the film for me, I feel like after Chris gets beaten up, I felt like maybe there should have been a moment where Davis realizes that, uh, you know, this kind of stemmed from him having the conversation and kind of helping him. It's, it's, I don't know if I feel even comfortable saying that because I feel like it's an important thing to let this kid know, hey, it's okay. But at the same time, by doing so, he ends up getting this kid beaten up. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's weird for me. Like, I he honestly went against right. his advice. I mean, right. he did. I didn't, ma- I didn't make that connection that everyone else is making or some people are making of the idea of that from that speech. He said, it's good to be yourself. But he also said, like JJ was about to say, and instead yeah. I wanted to say it apparently, is uh, like <laughs> hunker down. Right. Fake it for you know, four more years yeah. and then things and are going to be, be about yourself. to be your life is about to blow up in a world of freedom and loveliness. But right now, maybe follow the status quo. I did. Yeah, I never took it as that was a result of something. So I didn't think Jake needed to do that. Davis. Sorry. No. Yeah. I think I was just reading it wrong, but I think you're right. <laughs> well, and I don't know. I think there's part of it that that you know. I feel like he he made the choice he did to go out because he felt like he was going to be with the people that were in his community. And and mm, he was okay. ultimately oh, yeah. right. I mean, he he was with his community, and he was with his with his people. At least that's what we got in some of the in in the you that know, dance party looked beautifully. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. That beautifully edited dance party, and and uh, I, I I think that was that was ultimately you know him going to the place where he thought he was going to be safe to be himself, and and ended up you know that confidence ended up being misplaced everything still is speaking everything is metaphor still speaking about chris marino for one second i was incredibly put off by the i, I thought i thought and i'd love to talk about it for one second if we can the um bulletproof vest sequence oh yeah i thought it was so Ooh. tone deaf and okay weird. describe the sequence though uh, tommy describe the sequence jake gyllenhaal's character is desperate to feel something 
And so he comes up with the idea of we have this gun. I'm sorry that the uh, Chris Marino, uh, the gay kid, has a gun and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal finds it with him. And he's like, "Okay, let's go try this out with no seemingly understandable. Maybe it's a get it out of your system kind of thing. Either way. He has, um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character has ransacked a army supply store and has a bulletproof vest, apparently. And he wants the kid to shoot him. The whole thing is set up just like the car crash. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Huh. I didn't make that connection. <laughs> the idea that when the car before the whole car crash sequence is filmed because we know how cars car crashes work in film now i'm just waiting for it to crash the way that it was filmed the way that they gave in the beginning of the film the way that they give you that uh other shot where basically the driver and their uh reader i'm sorry and the writer aren't really in frame but you're just seeing that cars are coming you're just waiting for things to crash whether you've seen a trailer or not well, and we should say anecdotally, the number of times they pull off the exact same trick when he's behind the wheel of his his Porsche, uh, of just you know driving while looking around, while looking while the while Chris Cooper or Chris uh, what's his name is drumming on the yeah. on the the dashboard. Those were horrifying sequences because they had set it up so early in the film with the accident. Go ahead. It's a good point. Well, now that I'm sort of walking myself through it, uh, maybe that was part of what Jake Gyllenhaal was Jake Gyllenhaal's character was going for. Either way, the idea of an angry, young, high school kid with a gun out in the woods playing it for the how does this affect Jake Gyllenhaal's character? And I'm desperate to feel things felt tone deaf in the moment, felt tone deaf and weird and scary. And I felt like the film expected me to feel something that I was not feeling at all, which was supposed to be kind of humor or catharsis. Instead, I was just like, you were the worst role model ever. Yeah. In that same regard, though, Moreno, Chris Moreno is a terrible role model for for him because this is what they're they're both going through this process in my mind of of trying to discover kind of what it looks like not to be sad, not to not to be hurting or not to be numb and or not to be numb. Right. And they, they both are going through this and it causes them when they we they come together to make really bad decisions. Interesting. There, something about it. It wasn't on first uh, watching. It was very off putting and very unsatisfying. But I like the ideas that are being thrown around. It's interesting. I, I love. It's smarter it. than I thought it was. Maybe I thought it was just a a weird trick that has was ignoring school shootings. Well, you've lassoed a whole yeah. bunch of little scenes within the film there, and I th- and I think that's what I loved about it and didn't feel tone deaf about it is because you felt like you were on the verge of something really terrible throughout the film, and it gave you that suspense of, oh, no, something really bad is going to happen here. Um, and and when the b- really bad things did happen, they did it very gracefully. They didn't shock you with it. So I think that that drama that was really in the film for me was was a positive. It, it allowed there to be tension in uh, many, many sequences sort of perforating the film, right, in in ways that that separated me from the sadness of the grief of the primary sort of A story, and and bring me around to you know things to be excited about 
right? Just to get keep my adrenaline up uh, in a way that that didn't necessarily distract me from from the lessons that he was learning. Yeah, that both of them were learning. It, it made me incredibly uncomfortable, and it made me really uh, question Davis's uh, sensibilities. Um, but I, for me, that was actually one of the stronger uh, scenes. I, I really think every scene between Davis and Chris, those are just like absolute highlights in this film for me. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, because I had such a visceral reaction to that. But good. Well, I, but okay. but I liked. But I I, I too had a, a visceral reaction. But I think that. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of what they were going for here because because you don't want Davis to always be seen as as like kind of that that cool guy who says everything like right. in, the, in the gay conversation that this is one of those times where it's like he's he's doing things that he's really shouldn't be doing. Like that's just a terrible he's making thing it up as he goes along. Yeah. No, and that's what I meant uh, by cool, Andy, to go exactly with your part is I had written it off. And that's why I'm so glad for this situation is I'd written it off as the director wanted one thing and it totally didn't work. And it was, that's why I started with the word tone deaf, words tone deaf. And clearly there was, it was smarter than I, it just for some reason struck me somewhere uh, sensitive where I am. And so that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Well, what's so funny about it is you could, you could really apply the exact same conversation we just had about the gay conversation. Like you don't have to go very far to realize that this is yet another sequence where um, Chris Moreno and Davis are having a conversation where they are both out of sorts and shouldn't be saying the things that they are saying. Uh, and, and both um, out of their depth. Know, Kind of. And out of their depth, right? They they both are absolutely clueless, and yet it it is written as if that you know the things that are coming out are are centering these characters. When you realize they're both in a really bad place in maybe their that's lives. what a lot of and I mean. So if you're really just they are look, unreliable. Yeah, it, but if you're just looking for honesty, maybe you don't yeah. want someone with a a pat answer. You don't exactly. want this thing. Exactly. You're just you're both figuring things out together, and maybe that's so. The that's why point. I think these. Yeah, I think these scenes are are really exceptionally well written, uh, even if they're you know they're they're tone deaf in their own way. Love it. There, there you go. There you love go. it. I'm glad that I brought that up. I feel completely different about that scene now. And you know what? I love Batman versus Superman now. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> oh my God! You know what? I want to go watch The Hobbit. Come Take on! Take that back right now. <laughs> Let's uh, let's take on this just as a last sort of question on the story. Who who had this question about perspective? Was there any particular character that you felt uh, that you felt more connected with? In other words, um, when you saw people reacting to Davis's grief, did you think, "Yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, like father-in-law right now," or I feel I feel like uh, it's going to be hard to say Karen Marino, but I, I, I I'm interested to see what in from which frame of reference people seem to be watching the film. Well, it definitely feels like it's Davis's story. Um, but the, one of, again, going back to the sense of this feeling very novelistic, is there were times where it really felt like they were jumping perspectives. Like there was a time when I felt like we were with Karen for a while, and then we were with Chris for a while. We were definitely with Chris for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I mean I I don't know I guess uh, I and not that you can't focus on other characters in a story, but weirdly the way that it was done in this script felt uh felt really novelistic it just didn't feel quite cohesive still i i really did connect with uh with davis for the most part in the film i mean i certainly had issues but i i enjoyed connecting with him yeah uh, davis is a tough character and it's a tough character in an incredibly tough situation and i like more and more the idea that we've sort of have been talking about of what is appropriate grief 
and what a disgusting idea that is of putting appropriate grief onto someone. Um, so we think this is a different way of handling it, right? Cause I think that that was, uh, not a suspenseful way, but we haven't talked about before of how much I dislike the movie gone girl uh, and, and the idea of appropriate grief for Mm -hmm. Ben Affleck's character in gone girl and how they sort of, uh, use that to manipulate manipulate the people watching the film uh, manipulate the audience that's what I had a trouble trouble with in that film and I and I feel like what I really like about demolition is that we're it feels like we're taking a more objective analytical view of, of what's what what is appropriate grief and um, and should we consider it, what people are going through appropriate I feel like if I were if I were to put myself in the shoes of a particular character it was I, I agree uh, it was probably mostly with Davis but the the uh, Karen's character I think is really appealing to me because um, she operates out of this place of just general sort of social intrusion as much as she tries to kind of act the uh, act the introvert you know she works in a small office at a weird vending machine company and is kind of dating her boss and and but she has her own little life you can tell like she she's butting in uh by directly picking up the phone she just had to send you know a buck 25 back to this guy as a check right that's that was her job but her role became someone to butt in and 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 be moved by and thus move our central character and there was a time in my life where man that would have been magnet for me that would have been crazy crazy appealing to just butt in to whatever experience was uh you know catnip will will you be my karen I will be your care. I'm going to start writing you letters tonight. <laughs> Note to self, buy stamps. Uh, so anyway, I you know I feel like hers was really interesting because she she's dealing with her. We don't really know a whole lot about her quote grief. We get a little bit of it through a bit a bit of it through uh, Chris and his demonstration of you know what Dad went through, um, but we don't really get it from her. And yet she portrays kind of her own sense of grief by living through uh, Davis's journey, I think, in a really compelling way. And so I, I really liked that. And I loved that there you, you read the letters in the, in the bathtub. While smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me, the interesting thing about Karen is that she's also sort of an isolated personality, just like Davis is. She, she's in this relationship with her boss, but it's not anything really serious you know in a relationship with her son there's clearly some barriers there so for me it was an interesting parallel of of two people that were living lives really in isolation they have no real strong connection with anybody and by the end we see that she now has this relationship with her son she's realized her failings as a mother and how she really needs to connect with her son in a different way and i think it comes back to to davis you know his ability to just notice the things that he hasn't been noticing to be more attentive to those things like the squirrels in the park and the tree and all those things and for karen also to be more mindful and present in the relationship she has with her son and so for me it was Mm -hmm. something that i struggled with in the middle of the film of what really her function and role of that b story was but by the end i thought okay i can connect them together well enough that it i felt satisfied that was a, that was definitely a story of resolution for me too. I thought that was. Mm-hmm. I walked out feeling really great about the music, and it, you know, just in in terms of the straight up soundtrack, I thought they picked some really terrific tracks, and it it played incredibly well 
with uh, with the story, particularly Chris's story. Uh, am I alone? No, I agree. I agree. And I think it, it was clear that song music was selected for effect in the film. And I liked that. Uh, it At times it felt a little strange, like Karen picking crazy on you. I don't know why she would be sitting randomly at a at a diner and pick crazy on you because that works so much better in metaphor than it does in reality. But, um, Everything but, it is a, metaphor. but it was a great song and it really worked in the movie. So I agree with you. Yeah, I, the music was great. I And I thought it was fun to see that song in there. And I actually liked just the way that they they incorporated it into just the story where he's listening to it, he screeches to a stop, the music shuts off, he runs in, you know, comes back out, music starts up again. I, I, I enjoyed all of that. I thought it worked nicely. So for me, what I found really interesting about the music was, aside from the, the Crazy On You song by heart, and I don't have the, the deepest knowledge of a lot of music, but none of the songs, I mean, there were a few songs that maybe I recognized, but it wasn't really frequently used songs of a specific era or the things that have been heard on the radio a lot. Um, and that would just be maybe my own lack of musical knowledge, but I thought the choice to pick songs that weren't uh, maybe obvious, because I found myself looking through the credits at the end saying, okay, what was that song? What was that song? I, I sort of felt like, like Davis, that scene where he's in the garage, you know, and he's like, okay, and you, there's the scene with the kid loading up his phone with songs. It's like, okay, here's these songs that clearly this kid is connecting with, and, and Davis is trying to sort of connect with the kid that way, or he's connecting with these songs. So for me, I like that choice of almost like um, in a, a Wes Anderson film of songs that fit the mood really well, but aren't familiar songs that everybody's like, oh yeah, of course you're going to use that. Particularly when we see in the the kid's room, uh, you know, pictures of like David Bowie. It wasn't like a David Bowie laden soundtrack or glam rock or anything. It was a nice range of different genres across different decades. So for me, that the musical choices were strong, but also when I think in terms of sound, the way the sound editing, there were lots of moments where uh, Phil is talking to Davis and the sound is muted because he's mentally someplace else. And I thought that was used to great effect throughout the film to really get into his mindset. And for me, the, the whole soundscape of the film was really reflective of where Davis was emotionally at different points throughout the film. It was like a smarter Zach Braff film. Oh yeah, <laughs> like Zach Braff, I feel like he listens. He makes the soundtrack, then writes a screenplay around it. But these had these were smarter choices, not just hip choices. What do I have against Zach Braff? I'm sorry, Zach. Seems no, no, but rude. I agree. I was I was shazamming in the middle of the film. So <laughs> yeah, it was terrific. It was terrific. It seemed to really drive the drive the film, particularly as good of a, a you know a, a little drummer as as Chris Moreno. Um, is is portrayed as as being like it really is he, he's interested in ingesting the music that right. that he's playing. I thought that was a really nice character touch. So uh, I've been I've been. Has anybody found a playlist? Not yet. Uh, it's not the soundtrack. It doesn't appear to have been released, and so I've been kind of scrambling to find a playlist. That should if be a soundtrack one, instead of one Guardians for the Galaxy. Right. Guardians of the Galaxy was songs that everyone has heard a zillion times before. So yeah. There we go. That's the music. Anything? Any other final comments as we go into uh, into the the, uh, the the important stuff? I was just gonna just as far as the expectations for this film uh, this weekend, uh, it was expected to uh, make around two to three million. And I don't know how the theaters were where you guys uh, when you guys went and saw it. I saw it last night, opening night. Ten minutes before the movie, I was one of three people sitting in the in the theater. By what what time? What it was, was the seven o'clock show. 
Uh, okay, I was at a five twenty, and it was I was one of three. yeah. By the time the movie started, I think it was about eight to ten people total. Fox uh, Searchlight, uh, it's uh, coming in pretty low right now. Uh, I think that for Friday they only made three hundred sixty thousand. It looks like they may only make around one million this weekend. So the movie is uh, definitely going to be a disappointment for well, them I, in the I box office. Think but isn't this an art movie? How much right. did this movie cost? It feels like an art movie. Well, it's. I mean, it's Fox Searchlight. It was a. It was a low yeah. budget film. Uh, gosh, I want to see. Let me see if I can find how much it cost. I mean, while while you're looking at that part of, uh, I asked some friends if they wanted to go see this movie with me this weekend because I was seeing it for the podcast, and none of them knew that it was out. I I didn't even know about really what it was about until I was on my way into the theater today. And I, as I was walking out, I had a very small attendance too. I saw it this afternoon, and uh, the one of the the guys who took my ticket at the front of the thing, oh, what did you see? What did you you know? I said demolition, and they said, was it good? And I, again, I I really liked it, and I said, yeah, but it's about grief, so it's not going to get a whole lot of wide 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 acclaim. So I think kind of the oh, so it's probably film, JJ's fault then. Yeah, it is. Why oh, yeah, more I, people aren't seeing? It. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think they're doing a big job of promoting it either well when i saw it in the theater this afternoon uh about a five o'clock show and i think there were maybe six other people in the theater and as i was sitting there watching the credits uh you know some one of the couples walked past and one of them and i thought it was a really odd comment they said well that wasn't really a love story and i thought what (laughs) what in the marketing or anything what made you think this was gonna be that film and to to me that's that's like my second that wasn't zootopia it's 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 my second favorite overheard you know comment at well i guess third my my first favorite is you know star wars yeah that's a star wars but my second favorite was when i saw tree of life in the theater a couple behind us saying well that was weird we should have gone to see larry crown instead (laughs) 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 at least they made it through all three hours of it yes but i think i think the marketing of this is it's just challenging because it's not and i guess that's sort of the challenge of the quote-unquote art film of what niche is it really going for or what demographic who is your target audience and it's it's really challenging in a character piece about grief to to really sell a film like this well do you guys remember the movie my girl yep oh my yeah, first, yeah. My, oh yeah my, my, that was that my was first job ever was that it was so as an right. usher at a theater and uh and we had so i was there when my girl was, was out and we had people coming out and demanding their money back because they brought kids to it because it was marketed oh, as this yeah. kids film oh it's macaulay and culkin yeah right, it's a fun yeah, kid from home ooh. alone <laughs> And it's do you like, like Macaulay Culkin? Do you love bees? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about death? I mean, it's just like, I mean, people were completely bamboozled walking into My Girl. So I think that there is films like this, and that's why I made the comment about grief. I don't know how to promote this really well. Even though I loved it, I don't know how to tell other people that, that I loved it. It's going to take a lot of personal connection to make it work. But I do think that, the I mean, I saw the trailer and I felt like, I had a sense of what the story was based on the trailer. It's not like I felt like it was mismarketed through the trailer, at least. It's just maybe people didn't see the trailer. I didn't watch the trailer and go, oh, that's a that's a, a romantic story. Right. Uh, right. But did you think it was a comedy from the trailer? Because that's what I thought the trailer was trying to suggest. And I didn't find it comic. I found it much more powerful in a dramatic sense. I thought it was going to be a quirk fest. And I, it kind of turned you know, out to be a I, quirk yeah. fest. It was quirky, but but I'm with you, JJ. I think that the the trailer actually I think highlighted more of the the sort of quaint comedy than than is actually in the in the film. Ended up in the film. 
But it, it definitely had that vibe of this is a story of a guy who's lost who tries to discover himself. Like right. that that's kind yes, of the vibe that I true. got from it. Right. It's always a yeah. trick with tragedy and comedy because they can be so close to each other regarding expectations. So you can take that tragic moment and when you cut it in a trailer, it's like, oh, here's a guy demolishing a house. And with whatever music or how you edit that together, it can come across as sort of the light, you know, fluffy, you know, comedy of like, he's taking a sledgehammer to the wall into the big TV and look at how he's being disrespectful to this this thing versus the emotional weight that it can carry. And I think that's the challenge of cutting a trailer for a film like this. You don't have enough time to establish the weight you know that the grief merits in the film, right? That's true, Pete. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Were you asking for um, for like final comments? I don't know if you were or not. Yes. But one th- before, well, I was trying. I trying to work that in. You, but uh, Andy was also looking yeah, for before, money. Before you do, I can't find anything as far as what the budget for this film was. But looking at yeah. Wild, his last film, that budget was twenty million. So oh. I'm thinking it's probably a comparable sort of budget. Uh, I don't know. That's just a guess. But Less if that's the case. Stuff. Yeah, less location stuff. So, I mean, maybe it's not quite that high, but still, I just can't imagine it's going to make its money back if it's uh, looking at making $1 million on opening weekend. But if it's sure. any anywhere near that budget, thank you, thank you, Fox Searchlight, for releasing movies like this. Yes. They are yes. going away. So yes. thank you so much. I was uh, Thank you so much. I think that's in... in, in Mr. Cut. Searchlight? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Searchlight. Can I call you Fox? Searchy. <laughs> um, and that's what I kind of wanted to lead into with my, I guess, with my final comment is that you, I think a lot of people and a lot of the movies that we end up seeing on the film board because of, you know, the the, the conversation that's out there, uh, people go to the movies to see them in terms of escapism. And I learned, actually, I, I learned something about the kind of movies that I like in this film when I was there. And it's that I don't particularly need or need is the wrong word. I don't particularly go to the movies for escapism. I go to the movies for connection, and it's something that um, that I do in all of the arts and literature that I that I consume. What I like is I like to go some go see something portrayed or or created and think of what it means to me. And that's why this movie had such a profound effect on me is because I immediately connected with the story and the lead character, and I found myself considering throughout the film what what it meant to me and and what my life situation was in it. So this is really my favorite kind of film because it touched me in that way and it got me connected in that way. So I know that people go to movies for escapism. I know that that's something that's out there for them. But if if you're the kind of movie watcher that I am, this is a film that can force you to ask those questions about your life, whether it is it, it, whether you've had loss in your life and and you're saying, is this something I need or is this how I deal with it? Or if you haven't and you're questioning, is it appropriate what's happening here? And, and that's why I was so positive on the film. Tommy, your final comments? I It was mostly a positive experience for me. Um, I thought it was pretty messy, especially towards the end. But after this conversation, I really actually look forward to seeing it again. And that's probably the best compliment that I can give any film. Certainly, we'll take that, Andrew. I uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the same for me. I I have issues with the film for sure, but I do feel like uh, this is definitely a film that warranted a kind of conversation uh, to just kind of get into a little more. I really feel like um, I like this film more now than I did when we started our conversation. So I I too would uh, look forward to watching this one again. Steve. Yeah, I think this is a film 
I think back to our conversation about Fury, a film that gave us a lot to talk about, you know, just beneath the surface and what it has to say about people and humanity. And I think there's a, depending at different points where you are in your life, you're going to have a different relationship to this film. But I think it's definitely, as Tommy said, that we need films like this that that aren't just let me escape. And I think, you know, JJ's right. This is a film that you sort of engage in a dialogue with. It's one that as it ends, to me, I like to have that moment to to sit and reflect. And I think maybe it was a benefit that it was a, a small crowd because it's nice to sit and just ponder what what this film has has had to say and what it's what it's telling us and how we're engaging in dialogue with the film. That it's something that, again, I said, I, I don't know it's a film that I, I love, but there's lots of great films that I don't enjoy watching. But it's a, a powerful experience that gets you to reflect back on yourself, your life, things that you're you're experiencing. And for me, walking away with this, it's it's just a nice reminder of to no matter how busy things get, to take those moments to stop and slow down and look and appreciate the people and things in your life. Uh to not take them for granted because you don't know how long they're going to be there. I uh you know I'm with all you guys. I think this was uh I, I think the the prevailing sentiment that uh, this film is made better by this conversation. I absolutely stand with that. I I want to give this third act another shot uh, in the context of this discussion of the the film as a tour of grief. Um, I, it still feels a little bit messy, but I, I deeply like it. And I don't think I, I was um, kind enough uh, or exuberant enough about uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in, in this film. I, I really enjoyed what he brought to this film. And this is the third time that we have done anything uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal uh, in the scope of the next reel. Um, Andy and I did Zodiac some years ago, and um, we obviously did uh, Prisoners um, on the film board. And uh, and now this. You're and, forgetting and I think Everest. Every- oh, good grief. <laughs> the fourth thing we have done. Wow. All right, well, it's the third I, that we've I, enjoyed. Right. It's the th- <laughs> it's the third slam dunk. I I really enjoyed him, and I I feel like he's he is is just a he's just a real talent. And I think this was a complex role uh, of a complex individual going through something um, that is uh, deeply difficult to center around. And I think he did an incredible job. So uh, I'm I'm thumbs up on this movie. I think it's probably time we rank it. Uh, demolition man, demolition man. He's just taking apart everything he sees so he can try to put his life together again. Grief and loss. Let's do it. Flick chart. <laughs> that was totally improvised, right? It was pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Head over to flickchart.com slash TNR film board. That's, uh, that's our flick chart list. We actually compare filmo a filmo. Uh, the films that we've talked about on this very show. So go over there and log into your TNR Film Board uh, account, because like us, I'm I'm sure you have one, and uh, go ahead and search for Demolition. It it may come up because uh, it's it's made a million dollars or it's going to make a million dollars this weekend. That's enough to be on Flickchart, and let's start ranking. All right, first up, Andy? we've got Demolition or The Dark Knight Rises. Demolition. Was that the third yeah. one? That's yes. the third one. Yes. Demolition. Demolition. Definitely demolition. All right. Demolition or Spectre. Was that the third one? Okay. <laughs> demolition. <laughs> demolition. Uh, I, I didn't see Spectre, so I have to sit out. Uh, Andy, are you done? I, you know, Spectre wasn't one of the strongest Bond films. 
but it is a Bond film. I certainly am going to end up watching it more in my life than I'll watch Demolition. Uh, on that, I feel like I could vote Spectre, but I do feel like there was probably more to talk about with Demolition. So I don't know. I'm kind of flip flopping here. I feel like I'll be well, Demolition. I'm, yeah. I, I think I'm I think I'm squarely in the middle of the middle uh, of Spectre. I, I'm I'm with you, and I think that, that I'll watch that movie more. I've watched it again recently, and I enjoyed it. Uh, it's an easier film to digest, and I'm way in the middle of Bond right now. So I'm I'm. I'm going to say Spectre. And because it doesn't matter, I can That's feel okay right. about it. <laughs> you stole that from me. I could have been there. <laughs> All right, Demolition or The Martian? Demolition. The Martian. Huh. The Martian. Right now, know. Demolition. Yeah, I certainly had issues with The Martian. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to vote The Martian, though. So I guess that's that. Because we're all a bunch of simpletons. <laughs> Demolition man. Oh, what? I'm sorry. I was I'm re-recording it for my album. <laughs> all right, Steve. This is uh, since you brought it up. Demolition or Fury? Ooh, Demolition. Oh. I know JJ has a love letter to Fury. Demolition. I do. Why don't you go marry Fury? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm actually going to my individual flick chart to see what I voted earlier today because I don't remember and I love them both. Uh, I am Fury. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm Fury too. What does that do to us? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm. Did I, everyone vote? I, I'm Fury. Yeah, I'm also Fury. I think there. Really? As, as we said, there's some messiness in huh. Demolition, but I and. It's been a while since I've seen Fury. I did listen to our conversation again, and there was we just there was a lot in that film, and I remember the weight of that film. But also, I think as a whole, it was a lot more consistent than than Demolition. Hmm. They're literally I, fair enough. Yeah, I feel like back I had back on my flick chart. Wow. I f- I feel like I'm the one who had the, mo- the most problems with Fury, and I struggle with that one. So I would say Demolition here, but. Three for Fury, so that one takes it. That's right, Andy. You're in Arizona. Your vote doesn't matter. That's right. <laughs> hey, my well, vote doesn't neither... matter, too. <laughs> Wait. Uh, Demolition or Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? I will go with Planet of the Apes. Demolition. Was that the one I didn't it's, like? It's, that's, that was the one. That was, just because you like animals. Yeah. Oh, right. That was so much. good. You liked, yeah. Demolition. You liked the, you liked the way that they... Uh, they did the camera work in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, though. Yeah, I did, yeah, shot. but I had that weird problem. You had... I, it's funny. <laughs> I don't like animals being mean to Right, animals. exactly. It wasn't anything to do with the film itself. It was the subject matter that you had an no. issue with. But that's allowed. It's so yes. deeply unsettling. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, demolition. De- dead uh, wives, gonna, fine. Gonna... Dead monkeys, don't you even. <laughs> I'm going with... Uh, I'm going with demolition. I'm going to go with apes. All right. Well, demolition takes it then. Uh, demolition or oh, nope, that's it. That's Number it. nine. Oh, right oh, between nine. Nine. Oh, nine. Oh, nine. Oh, wow, made that's it into the top, top ten. Ten. I wouldn't have good. guessed. Uh, let's go real quick. Uh, what does that do for our star rating for Letterboxd.com? Five Out stars of... for me. Five. Okay. Five yeah. stars. Tommy. Uh, four. Uh, four yeah, four. Yeah, I'll Steve? go four on this. Yeah. Uh, I will be, uh, I'm going to go four and wow. a half. 
I wow. always forget we can do really? halves. Andy? That's uh, amazing. I'm at I'm I was a three. And I, I feel like the conversation brought it up to a three and a half. So I think that's where I land with it. Three and a half. All right. Complex math. I know. Three and one. <laughs> four point something. Yeah, it's an ish. Yeah, right? Four point two. Four point two. That's good. So we'll round that down to a four. All right. So then on my poll, we'll go actor by actor. Naomi Watts. One to eight. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. So, what does that, that, that what does that do for us uh, for for our next uh, film board? Where do we go from here, Andy? Do you have the the little black book open in front of you? Yes. Well, actually, uh, our next uh, show will be Lethal Weapon. We're kicking off our uh, Shane Black series. We got four films. Oh, to talk that's about fun. With him. What a relief! Should, yeah, after the after we struggled through the 1939, the so-called great year, golden age. Yes. Man, <laughs> that's something we I think successfully debunked. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll have some Shane Black to talk about, and then uh, our speakeasy, the one uh, that uh, we missed earlier this week because of my bungle. Uh, we'll be talking with Craig Anderson about the Silent Partner. And uh, then our next uh, film board next month is going to be Captain America Civil War. Oh, CG. <laughs> no, I'm actually interested in that one because I went uh, uh, with my friend Dash, uh, our friend Dash. I watched uh, the other Captain America movie, the latest one, yeah. and I really liked it. So I'm actually interested in this one. Cool. Did you call it the Captain American movie? <laughs> no. What? <laughs> I think I think you may have. We're going to go to the tape on Demolition that. Demolition and... man. <laughs> All right. That is going to be a good one. I I am excited about that one. But I I got to take a step back to this movie, uh, The Silent Partner. Uh, You got to see this movie. Uh, It was a real surprise. I think Andy and I, neither of us had seen it. And uh, it was suggested by our guest, Craig Anderson. That's going live next week. So see this movie. I've never Uh, even heard of it. We hadn't either. Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, and John Candy. Huh. First, I think it, I think it, we figured it's his first film. It's right? close it's to being his first. first. Nineteen seventy-eight. Is that right? Yep. Okay. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. It was Ooh. it was uh, terrifically fun, and we ended up very excited about it. So, um, yeah, it was it was fun to see, and it was an absolute surprise. So, hmm. totally worth digging that up. Uh, and uh, this from our guest, who boasts, uh, among other things, a ten thousand strong VHS tape collection. Wow. wow. Yeah, he's he's a he's quite a wonderful character. So we we had a great conversation with him. Can't wait to get that show out. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, on behalf of everybody, uh, it's so great to hear you, thugs, again. JJ, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to talk about this movie. Thanks for sending me to it. Mm, Tommy Handsome, glad you made it. Always a pleasure. Oops, I started talking to her. <laughs> it's okay. Magic of editing will sound great. Thank you, uh, Steve Sarmento. Glad you made it and made it back. Putting on my suspenders, putting my big boy pants on. <laughs> and Andy Nelson, as always, my friend. We'll talk soon. Have we ever thought about doing a remix of it? Adding some rap or something? I can sing Demolition Man again. That was clearly a huge hit. Ugh.
Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 